The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Good morning. Uh, my name is Brian Sorgenfry, and uh, I grew up in this church. And uh, when David Felker emailed me uh, asking if I would come, uh, the thought in my head is what, what always comes in when I hear First Pres Jackson. I, I will do anything. I will do anything this church asks because I'm so thankful. Uh, even as I was coming down Riverside this morning... Uh, testing whether my shocks on my van uh, worked, and they still do. Uh, glad to know things are still the same. Uh, yeah, just so many faces uh, and names started popping up as I drove through that neighborhood of uh, literal, like, second and third moms and grandmothers and who have just loved me, and it's just a privilege to be with you. And so I just get to say thank you. Thank you for uh, loving me and for being a faithful church that proclaims the gospel uh, every Sunday. So before I read, uh, I just I want to get you to think about something by way of introduction um, even as I, was, as I was about to walk up, right, I was thinking, what am I going to say? Because we know introductions and kind of first impressions, they're funny things. Because you want to, you kind of want to put your best foot forward if you're meeting somebody for the first time and you want to hide anything that's embarrassing, right? We're about five or six weeks away from students returning up in Oxford. And that means what's about to happen is something that's called uh, rush, in the sorority world or fraternity world or recruitment that many students participate in. And it's so interesting to watch because as, as incoming freshmen enter this thing called Rush, they start building their resume. And the resume is like picking out outfits that I'm going to wear, uh, presenting certain pictures, making sure other ones, uh, other ones are erased from social media accounts, you know, getting the right people to write your recommendation. Because it just feels like you're being watched. If I can just present this right resume, maybe I'll get in. Maybe I'll be accepted. And the whole Bible, of course, is about Jesus. But the whole Old Testament has been awaiting this person to show up, this Messiah. And how do you get introduced? What's the first impression you get in the New Testament of Jesus? It's, it's a genealogy. That's how we're introduced to him. It's this long list of names of the son of so-and-so, of so-and-so. And look, it still happens today a little bit in the South where family's a big deal. You know, if you meet somebody, you start saying, who are you, where are you from? And at least my joke is always eventually that person is connected to Yazoo or Kosciuszko somehow. You just, you just got to ask enough questions. And you, you, you'll, you'll figure that out. But in those days, family was everything. And your genealogy was essentially your resume. So much so that I've even heard that if there was someone real embarrassing in your, in your genealogy, you just erased them. You just didn't talk about them. And so think about this. If Jesus is who he claims to be, and he is, God himself in the flesh, there's only one person in all of history who got to pick their genealogy. Jesus absolutely got to pick his family lineage. And this is his resume. This is how he presents to the world, these are my people. These are the kind of people I identify with. These are the kind of people that I embrace. And it might not be the people you would think. It's not this hallmark of faithful people. There are some faithful people in there, but it's a, it's a group of messy people. And the genealogy is suggesting absolutely. That's who Jesus is proud to call his own. That's who Jesus loves to be identified with. So let me pray for us and then we'll read uh, this first part of the genealogy. Let's pray. Father, uh, if we know ourselves uh, this morning, we know that we need your help. 
we need your spirit. Uh, we come in here uh, with sadness. Uh, some of us come in here with fear. Some of us come in fearing like we don't belong. Others with great joy. Uh, but we can bring all those things uh, to you because you are a God of grace. And I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see uh, that Jesus is real. He's alive and he's a wonderful savior. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here's Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Minadab, and Minadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And we skip down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Grass with his flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Really is uh, only one point this morning. I know that kind of breaks tradition around here. One point. And it's just simply... Who are the people that Jesus identifies with? Who does Jesus love to call mine? We're just going to read some of these names. And here's what's interesting, right? Jesus' genealogy, he got to write it. It has the names of women, which was very, uh, that wasn't normal in a very patriarchal society. But Jesus says, I'm going to put these women in here because I identify with them. And so we're going to walk through those names. First, You have this woman named Tamar in verse 3. You can read about Tamar in Genesis 38. It is a, it's a horrifying story. It's a sad story. It's stomach turning. And if you grew up around the Bible, there's a chance this passage got skipped over. Not at first prayers, I love. They preach through every scripture. But Tamar is a woman who her whole life has been manipulated, used, and abused. She is twice married twice left a widow because her husbands were so evil, whatever that means, they were struck down by the Lord. So she was in horrible marriages. And her father-in-law, who at that time, by law, was supposed to protect and provide for her, actually lies to her, sends her away, and leaves her to fend for herself. That's Tamar. Tamar's life is such a train wreck, and it's not her fault. It's other people's doing. She's hurt. She's oppressed by, uh, with, uh, by people who have power that should have taken care of her. Things get so bad in Genesis 38 that in a last-ditch effort of self-preservation, she dresses up like a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law, is, is, becomes pregnant, and she has twins. And it's one of those twins, whose name's Perez, that ends up being in the genealogy of Jesus. Why? Why would Jesus make sure that Tamar is mentioned? A woman who is personally and systematically sinned against and abused to the point of absolute desperation. I think to show you the kind of people that Jesus came for. The kind of people that Jesus came to identify with and proudly rescue. And I know in my circles we don't always talk about this enough, but living in a broken and dark world 
it means that many of you this morning, you've been horribly sinned against. People who should have taken care of you, people who should have stood up for you, instead hurt you, abandoned you, manipulated you, or somebody close to you, and the pain is awful. It's awful. A friend of mine who was uh, a former campus minister back when he did uh, RUF was um, in a small group Bible study uh, with some young women in a sorority house, and they started um, talking about some of this, and he just asked them, he said, it's probably a group of, let's say, 20 young women. He said, how many of y'all by now have been treated inappropriately sexually? And 18 out of 20 of the young women raised their hand. That might not shock some of you. That's the reality of our world. And there's this spectrum of being sinned against, of course. But this needs to be talked about because what happens is, if you've been sinned against, if you've been used, there's this double pain. Because what happens is you feel dirty, you feel rejected, you're hurt, and it wasn't your fault. It was something done to you but not by you, but you still feel guilty. And there are deep scars. And Jesus puts Tamar in his genealogy to say that there are people who have been bruised and broken by the fall and by other people's wickedness, and they feel shame, and it's not their fault. And Jesus says, I came for you. And I'm proud to be identified with you. Because being sinned against means there's this longing within you, and there should be. There's this longing within you for justice and to not feel dirty. To not be defined by what somebody did to you. Which means you need justice and you need justification. You need justice and rescue provided by Jesus, here we go, who became a victim. You see, God becomes a man in Jesus, and he will be sinned against. Whether it be slander, whether it be falsely accused, whether it's being spit upon towards the uh, end of his earthly life, he experiences what ends up being the greatest injustice the world has ever seen as he hangs on a cross naked, a symbol of shame, everyone laughing at him. And he's the only purely innocent man to ever live, and he cries out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And don't you see the healing that comes? It might take a long time, but on the one hand, when you cry out to him as a victim, he is not removed. He knows the pain of mistreatment. He knows the pain of of injustice from people who should have cared for him. And when he hears you, he will walk with you through it. He knows what it's like to be you. And he knows just how evil evil really is. So that he promises that everybody will get exactly what they deserve. Other people might not have seen what, what, what was done to you. Jesus sees it. And he is either going to pay for it himself on a cross or he will handle the justice himself. But it will not be unseen forever. Vengeance is his. And the good news is Jesus has a greater power than the evil that's been done to you. And those scars, that dirtiness that feels like it's forever... There's a cosmic declaration that Jesus brings that says you matter in his eyes. And that can speak louder than what's been done to you and actually transform you. It's Jesus who came for those who have been sinned against. This is a somewhat famous story because it's in some of the literature of what's now known as Surge. But um, it talks about a a seven-year-old girl 
uh, when she had a dad, and the dad had this favorite shirt. And she wanted to do something for her dad, and so, uh, per usual, uh, she, that shirt was supposed to be washed, but she decided to do it herself instead of her mom. And so she washed it, and it was time to dry it, but she couldn't, she wasn't tall enough to hang it on the uh, clothesline outside, so the only thing she could reach was a rusty wheelbarrow, and so she hung it over it. And so when her dad came home, she was so excited, she said, Dad, I washed your favorite shirt, took him out to the yard, he saw it on the wheelbarrow, when he peeled it off, it ripped a hole in it, and there was a big rust stain across it. And he got so angry. He said, how could you do this? And berated her. And probably 20 years later, after going through counseling and being converted, here's what she said. She said, you know, I finally got it. I finally got that Jesus is so unlike my dad. What he would have done is he would have come home, he would have seen the shirt, he would have pulled off the wheelbarrow, it would have had a hole in it, and he would have worn it to work the next day. And he would say, look what my daughter did for me. Isn't this awesome? And Jesus healed those scars. He can do that. Jesus came to identify with and bring healing and rescue to people who have been sinned against like Tamar. The next uh, female name you have is Rahab. Verse 5, you can read about uh, Rahab in Joshua 2. The short summary is this. She lived in a land of Canaan. Canaan was so twisted they were sacrificing children to god to gods there were so many things going on that god was bringing judgment and in that in that city there was i mean in that land there's a town called jericho in whom there lived a, a prostitute named rahab so she is a prostitute in a dark city in a wicked land look my guess is that Rahab lived a more publicly immoral life than anybody in this room this morning. Why do I think that? Because most people who have this kind of public immoral life don't walk into the church. Now, if you're here, there's no better place you should be, and I'm glad you're here. But most people with this kind of story stay away because they think they're unwanted. But the question becomes, why would Jesus put someone who has a train wreck of regrets from their immoral, immoral past into his genealogy. Because Jesus says those are my people. Jesus came for to be identified with and to rescue people who look at their past and think, man, I've got a lot of regrets. That's not good. There's a guy uh, years ago uh, in the late 70s, 80s, named Gordon MacDonald. Uh, he was a published author, Christian, president of InterVarsity, kind of a, a big name. And his secret affair that he had had for years came out. And so that was obviously big headlines. And he kind of went through a, a time where he was away and, and unknown. And then when President Bill Clinton uh, was elected and formed a spiritual advisory team, he asked Gordon McDonald to be on that team. And what was interesting is whenever Gordon McDonald's kind of name came up on the news or, or in, uh, in print, it would say Gordon Con McDonald the adulterous pastor. That's a past that will live with you. That's, an, that's, a, that's a past that could haunt you. I'm going to come back to that. But all of us, to some degree, have things in our past that haunt us, things that brings this kind of sense of shame and guilt that we think, man, if I, if I could go back and do that over, I wouldn't do that. Some of us have lost relationships because of things that have happened in our past. 
and it's just a place of regret. You might have things this morning that you walked in that you look back last week and you think, yeah, that's not good. I promise never to do that again. My question is, what do you do with the realization there's things in your past that you have deep regret for? uh, for? Where do you turn? Because what you're saying is, something needs to be done about my guilt. And Jesus puts Rahab in his genealogy to say, I came for people with a truckload of guilt in their past. I came to be identified with them, to rescue them. What we need, and I know this is going to sound strange, but, but Matthew 1 talks about this. We need someone who has been conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Because look, if you're a Jewish person reading this for the first time and you hear the Holy Spirit hovering over something, you would have thought Genesis 1 where the Holy Spirit hovers over creation, and that first creation comes into existence by the word of, word of God's power. And so the Spirit is the one who brings about creation. And now the Spirit is over the, the womb of, of Mary, which means Jesus is the new humanity, a new beginning. And he, of course, will end up on a cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he's taking the punishment that we deserve for all of our past mistakes. And he comes out resurrected three days later, declaring new life, new beginnings, sinful past gone, new creation here. So that Gordon MacDonald, right, that adulterous pastor, years later he was asked, you know, how does it it feel to be known when you walk into places, and sometimes it's in print, Gordon MacDonald, the adulterous pastor. You know what he said? He said, honestly, at this point it's kind of great. He said, I think everybody should have a name tag with all the, all the worst sins that they wear on, on their sleeve. And when they walk into church, when they walk into worship, they should take it off and stick it on Jesus because it will remind them every day of the power of what Jesus has done. I, I don't want to do that, but that does sound awesome because that's the reality. Jesus came to identify with and bring healing and rescue to people who've been sinned against like Tamar and to people who have a ton of regret in their past like Rahab. Well, then you have Ruth, right? Verse 5, Ruth is awesome. She is faithful. She really is. But there's a whole, there's a whole book of uh, the Bible devoted to her. You can read about it. You read it in this afternoon, four chapters. But here's what I want you to know about Ruth. She was a Moabite, which in biblical terms means she was a, she was a Gentile, which in our terms means she was one of those people. She was an outsider. She didn't fit in. She, she was on the margins she would have felt unwanted in the Jewish world. She, does, she wouldn't have fit in their world. And Jesus wants Ruth in his genealogy to show what kind of Savior he is, that he came for outsiders. He came for people who don't fit in. Because really, if you read the Gospels, if you watch Jesus, it's really interesting. The insiders are always out, and the outsiders are always in with Jesus. Which means he came to receive and rescue those who feel unwanted, who feel rejected. He's actually proud to be associated with outsiders, sometimes in ways that are really disturbing. Um, the late great actor Robin Williams, one time he, uh, he said uh, he used to think that the worst thing in the world was being alone. But he said that actually wasn't it. He said, I learned later on the worst thing in the world was being surrounded by people that make you feel alone. You ever felt that? Around a bunch of people and I actually feel alone. 
I feel like nobody knows me. I feel like I don't belong. And again, I, I probably don't have to press into the pain of loneliness, the fears of being unwanted that much. It's everywhere. It's hard. It's thick. It's so painful that sometimes we will do anything to not feel on the outside. I know we talk to like our, our college students and our high school students about just changing who you are to fit in, how that's bad, but it still goes on with us. We so badly want to fit in. And what we are looking for is a pronouncement of acceptance, a pronouncement of welcome, a pronouncement, a smile that says, you are mine. You are looking for Jesus. The God of space and time and history who, who became a, a, a person in Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate, Jesus was the ultimate insider. He's God's eternal son. But what happens? He's born to an unwed mother. He's born poor. He's mocked about his hometown. He's rejected by the religious leaders and the social elites. And he ultimately ends up on a cross alone. Taking our sin so that even God the Father turns his face away. The ultimate insider became the cosmic outsider. Why? So that you and I can be brought in. So that you, can I, you and I can be accepted and smiled upon by the triune God. The NBA great uh, Bill Russell uh, for the Celtics, probably the 50s and 60s. So he was playing basketball, you've got to remember, uh, while, as a black man in a completely segregated place. So he was being celebrated on the court for his chief achievements, but if you talk to him, he'll tell you he was not treated kindly off the court, mistreated, kind of told he didn't belong. And later on in his life, when he was interviewed about what, what was it like to be this great NBA player amidst so much just kind of civil unrest and segregation, and he said this, well, he said, my mother and father loved me dearly. He says, so when I went out and I met other people, if someone saw me and what I looked like and who I was and they didn't like me, I just realized that was their problem, not mine. He said, because of those, if these two marvelous people, my mom and dad, love me so much, then I must be okay. Did you hear it? There was somebody so dear to him that said that you matter, that accepted him. It discounted every other voice. That kind of acceptance changes you. That kind of love that will embrace you changes you from the inside. And so Jesus came to identify with, to heal, to rescue those who have been sinned against like Tamar, those who have a past of regrets like, uh, uh, like Rahab that they can't make up for, and those who are outsiders like Ruth. And lastly, you have Bathsheba. This is verse 6. You can read about Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. What's interesting is her name actually isn't used in the genealogy, and of course that's on purpose, because it says David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew wants you to know that David fathered a son by another man's wife. Matthew is emphasizing this point. He wants you to know Uriah was one of David's best friends, and David sees Bathsheba. He lusts over her. He uses his power to get her. She gets pregnant, and David, in panic mode, trying to preserve his reputation, kills Uriah to try to cover it up, and this is King David. King David wrote like half the Psalms. King David, if you want to use our terms today, King David was a Christian. 
and probably a better, he's a better Christian than me. I don't know about you. I haven't written any books of the Bible yet. And David had lots of kids, but Jesus chose this one, the place of David's greatest failure, to say, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be the line that I come from. That's my, those are my people. And see, this is, man, this is beautiful about Jesus. He is saying, I am a hero who came to rescue people who still struggle with sin even after they're converted even after they've walked with Jesus for a long time, after they're born again. That's why his name is Jesus. The angel commands them to name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Yes, past, present, and future sins that we haven't even committed. All of them gone. And this is what's good news. See, Jesus isn't someone who just simply died for your immoral past and washes that away. He even died for the ones that we haven't even committed yet and has already taken care of those. Because when he ends up on a cross and he cries out, what does he say? It is finished. What's finished? All the work required to bring you into his family. All the work required to make you righteous in his sight, to make you clean. All sin forgiven, his perfect righteousness given. He doesn't just, Jesus doesn't just drop down and give you a clean slate. He forgives completely. And then by his resurrection, says, now there's nothing, nothing that you can do that will separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing, period. And if, you, if we don't get this, you will keep trying to build your resume. You will keep trying to show Jesus and other people that you actually are good enough, and he just wants you to receive his resume. And you'll begin to think that your struggles with sin somehow jeopardize God's opinion of you. Or you'll begin to think that your struggles with sin, at the least, they bring out Jesus' disappointment with you. You ever feel that way? Like, yikes, Brian, you were like, Brian, you've been to seminary. You're a preacher. I would have thought you'd have been better, better by now. And I start thinking he's disappointed in me. But that's not what he's like. Some friend of ours... Um, had a child who was born um, severely disabled. They thought uh, she would never walk. But through years of therapy, um, they actually caught this on film uh, that she was going to, you know, in a street in their neighborhood, their cars, they were trying to get her to walk across the street for the first time. And so everybody was out there, camera was out there, and she was barely making it. Kind of would fall over, kind of get up. But when she made it to the end, they just exploded in joy and cheer. Why? Because the disability brings out their compassion, not their frustration and disappointment. They just love that she was trying. And you know, Jesus loves us better than that. If you're in Christ, if you're washed, if you're his, our sin struggles actually bring out his compassion, his tenderness. It draws him near. He's just glad you're trying. He's glad you're struggling. You didn't used to struggle before you were a Christian. Now you are. And he's so glad. And you know what? That frees you. I think it frees you to struggle. I think it frees you actually to have doubts and to move towards Jesus. I think it frees you to be vulnerable. Because Jesus and his church are a safe place to work through failure, to work through doubts. To be encouraged because that's what Jesus is like. 
So I'll end with this. There's an old uh, NPR podcast called um, StoryCorps. I don't even know if it still goes, but I used to listen to it a lot. And they always, they have two people interviewing each other. And this was a mom talking with Josh, who was her son who had Down syndrome. And they had this tender relationship. And mom is kind of interviewing her son, who is now 20. And she's asking Josh things. She says, Josh, what did you want to, what, what are your dreams? What did you want to become when you grew up? And Josh said, man, Josh said, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a minister and a WWE professional wrestler. <laughs> you know, and the interviewers, they kind of start laughing and those kind of things. But, but you could also tell that mom kind of stopped because here's Josh, he's 21, he's not a minister, he's not a professional wrestler. And he, and he, and he said, I wanted to do those things to make my mom proud of me. And you could tell she kind of got choked up. And she said, Josh, do you know I'm proud of you? And she said, oh, Mom, I know you're proud of me. And, and then on air, she said, do you remember this thing we always do? She said, let's do it. And she goes, you're my Josh. He goes, you're my mom. You're my Josh. You're my mom. You're my Josh. Right? You're crying in the car. Everybody's crying. Because what she presented to Josh was an everlasting love an acceptance that was not based on whether he achieved his goals or dreams or even his performance. It was something before he ever did anything. And you realize that brought this security. That brought this joy. Because here's the deal. Tons of voices are going to come into your head every day. Voices that, uh, from being sinned against, telling you that you're full of shame. Voices that talk about your, your past is still going to haunt you. Voices that when you struggle with sins, and you, you can't confess that. You can't tell anybody. You can't control all the voices that come into your head. But what you can control is the voice that you listen to. You can control the voice that you feed on. And the genealogy of Jesus is saying, feed on Jesus' voice. He came for to be identified with and to rescue those who have been sinned against, those who have a, uh, an immoral past, those who are outsiders, and those who have been following Jesus and still struggle with sin and can't get their life together. And my question is, is that you this morning? Because if it's not, beware. Because if you don't fit in those categories, those are the people that miss Jesus. Those are the ones who don't think that they need grace. They don't really need this kind of hero. They think they can do it. But if you fall into those categories, listen to Jesus' voice. He is for you. And he is bigger and better than anything else you can hold up to it. He's that good. He's that real. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus through real parents, uh, real flesh and blood. 2,000 years ago in real history through a lineage of just broken and messed up outside people. And it is so hard to believe that with you, we don't have to put our best foot forward. We can let you see the real us and see the good news of Jesus. So would you give us eyes to receive, even for the first time or the thousandth time, that Jesus really is for us and he is enough. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.